The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The title of the message is The Power of Christ's Resurrection. Many years ago, um, my sons and I would go on campouts with other young men. And there's all kinds of crazy things that happen when you go on campouts with young men and older young children. Um, and so we were on this camp out in North Texas. And one of our fathers ran across a diamondback rattlesnake in which he was able to kill it. And of course, as every red-blooded male will do, brings in his trophy to show everybody this snake. And everybody's like, wow, we're all gathered around. And so he had this little habit of he liked to take and cut the head off the snake. And then he liked to peel all the skin off of the snake. And then he liked to save it as a souvenir. So we all gathered behind his pickup truck and he dropped the bed down. He put a board down. This guy had done this before, evidently. And so we're all watching closely and he goes over um, and he cuts off the head and he drops it into a little jar. Then he goes back to the back of the tail and as he puts his knife into the back of the tail, suddenly this snake just coiling came in like this. And we were all like, whoa, what happened? The head was crushed. The snake was dead. Yet there was still this response in reaction to the attack on the tail. The snake was dead. Satan has been crushed under the heel of Christ. Will there still be reaction? Will there be a thing that's still going on in this world? Yes. But we are those who conquer. We are those who are set apart. And sometimes in our, in our misguided fear of Satan and the world, we find ourselves immobilized to becoming what God wants us to be. But be sure to know that Christ, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection crushed the head of Satan. And now it is time for the saints to rise up and to run the race that God's called us to do for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. We see a picture of this in the story of David and Goliath, don't we? We see Goliath, the imposing giant, whom even the king will not face. And then comes this young man, David, with five smooth stones. And the battle is taken on. And by God's grace, David throws a stone that kills Goliath. And if you remember, David then ran to Goliath, grabbed his huge sword, and cut off his head. And at that point, all the men of Israel rose up in a shout and ran into the battle, and they routed the Philistines. That's what I hope to do today for us is to move us from sitting back in the bunker, afraid of the world and afraid of Satan, and to launch us into the battle because Satan's head has been crushed by Christ. Victory is there. The temple curtain has been rent asunder. And victory is assured. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ empowers us to live transformed lives and to be his ambassadors to the lost. So we're going to look at two things today. Christ has empowered us to be transformed. And we've been transformed for a purpose. The purpose is to be his ambassadors and take the glorious message of Christ to those people. John MacArthur wrote, The resurrection is the pivot upon which all of Christianity turns, and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Did you catch that? The doctrine of the resurrection is critical to the Christian life. It's not something you can just set aside. If, if, if it's not true, then it really doesn't matter what else is in the Bible. It doesn't matter who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who God is. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if Christ did not raise from the dead. Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside all other human philosophy and religious speculation. Just put Christianity with all the rest. A good idea, some nice thoughts, some pleasant rules and regulations to follow. But Christ changed all that. I want us to think first about Christ's resurrection empowering us to live transformed lives. He does that first by securing our salvation. Let's turn to Romans 5, 8 through 10. Let's have our scriptures open and active today. Before we can go out into battle, we have to be confident that we are secure, that we are safe. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by Christ's death, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? We've been justified by his blood, it says in the scripture. And we have been saved from the wrath of God. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to satisfy God. God poured out his wrath on Christ. You were united with Christ in that. And he says, listen, friends. If while you were his enemies, his death justified you or made you right with him, what do you think is going to be the case with him alive again? It will bring salvation. Christ will bring salvation. If his death brought reconciliation, his life will ensure salvation. Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
This is an act that took place in the past. It is complete. And the results continue. We were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. If you're here today and you know Christ, you are in the kingdom of light. You have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. There is no going back there because of what Christ has done. In 1 Corinthians 15, and Cody read a lot of that today, verses 12 through 19, Paul is arguing for the resurrection. And Paul basically says, if there is no resurrection, the following things are true. Number one, if there is no resurrection, Christ is dead. We don't know if his body's not there, where's his body? I don't know, but he's dead. We have a dead savior. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Most of all his leaders are dead. That is in the past. No resurrection. Point two, then our preaching is in vain. If Christ is dead, if there is no resurrection, we don't need to preach. No resurrection, then your faith is empty. It's vanity. If there is no resurrection, let's all go home. Let's sell the building and let's live our lives however we choose to. With no resurrection, Paul says, then we're false teachers because we're teaching there is a resurrection. So if there's not, now we're false prophets. We're false teachers. He said, no resurrection, then you are still in your sins. If Christ was not raised, then there's no way of knowing if his sacrifice was acceptable to God. Therefore, you have not been forgiven. You are still under the wrath of God. No resurrection? Then all the dead saints that we've hoped for that they would go to be with Christ, they've all perished. They've all perished in their sin. Finally, he says, if there's no resurrection, then we of all people are the most to be pitied. Because guess what? We're not part of the one true religion. We are part of a cult with false teaching. And we've lined all our lives up on that. If there's no resurrection, there is no salvation. Christ's death and resurrection are absolutely inseparable. Well, praise God that he died for our sins. Only if he's what? Resurrected. Only if he's resurrected. Christ's death means absolutely nothing without the resurrection. A lot of us do a lot of shopping online, don't we? A lot of us buy a lot of things or we bank online or we do all this. Or we're doing our taxes online and we send them in and it says you're, it's pending. And you're going, oh my goodness. Will they be in in time? 
Will they accept my tax return? Will they accept my payment? And then we get an email saying, congratulations, your transaction has gone through, your product is on its way, or the IRS has taken your tax return. I'm not sure if that's a praise or not. The resurrection is our heavenly receipt declaring the great exchange has taken place. Christ's righteousness for our sinfulness. He took our sinfulness. He gave us his righteousness. The resurrection declares the transaction went through. We are forgiven. We have been justified. I know there's a lot of tendency to try to, try to, to be compliant with the world. Brothers and sisters, this is an issue we can't fudge on. The resurrection of Jesus is a cornerstone of the church of Jesus Christ. If there is no resurrection, it really doesn't matter. We're just being religious for no reason whatsoever. So point one, by securing our salvation, Christ empowers us to transform our lives. Now we know we're his. We know we have his righteousness. We know we've been justified by faith. And secondly, we are transformed by him empowering us by his spirit. Transformation does not happen apart from the spirit of God. When Christ saves us, he saves us for a purpose, and the purpose is to transform us and to make us into the image of Christ, to bring us from being unrighteous and wicked to being righteous. This is the end game of what he's doing. He is not giving heaven insurance so that you can play in the devil's playpen. He has a purpose to save you for his purposes, to change you. Acts 3.26, Peter is talking to the Jewish crowd and he says this, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Why did Christ die? Why was he resurrected? To turn all of his people to become like him. And to turn us away from wickedness. Romans 6.4 We're united with Christ in his death and resurrection. We may not believe it, but it's true that something amazing happened in our faith in Christ, we were united with him. Our experience is his experience. He died on the cross, we died. He was raised, we have been raised, we have been changed. He says we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about spiritual baptism. That we have been united with him and we are experiencing what he's experiencing. Into, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
by the glory of the Father, what's that next part say? We too might walk in newness of life. Paul says in Romans that Christ's resurrection, the purpose of Christ's resurrection was to cause you and I to walk in what? A new life. A new way. Not in the old ways of sinfulness and impurity and all those things, but to walk in a way of righteousness. This is what the resurrection was. It wasn't just go, wow, isn't that amazing? He rose. Isn't that great? There was a purpose behind it. That we would walk in newness of life. He says it again in Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and his argument in Romans 8 is, if you have the spirit, you're a Christian. If you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. There are no Christians who don't have the spirit of God. And if the spirit dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. For all of us who are believers, we've been given the Holy Spirit. The same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. You want to talk about power. What kind of power does it take to raise someone from death to life? This is the power of God. And he says he has given it to us. So that we would be what? Able to live a happy life and be focused on ourselves? No, that we would be transformed and be used to expand the kingdom for the glory of Christ. Notice Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. He's praying, and he wants them to understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. If these Ephesians can understand the power that has been made available to them by the Holy Spirit they will no longer be who they used to be. They will be transformed. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, some of you used to be fornicators and adulterers and homosexual, but that's who you used to be. You have now been, been transformed by the grace of God. The grace of God changes us. It doesn't leave us where we are. It doesn't leave us just living in sin. It transforms us. How are we to be transformed? How do we cooperate in that whole process of transformation? This is still under empowering us by his spirit. First, we have to recognize whose slave we are. Are you a slave to Christ? Are you a slave to obeying his word and loving him and doing whatever he pleases? Or are you a slave to your own passions and lusts? That's where the first question comes. Whose slave am I? Our culture tells us we should be a slave to no one. We're free to do whatever we want. The scripture says you are going to be a slave. Either to the flesh or to the world or you're going to be a slave to Christ. Some of us may need to wrestle with that a little bit. Whose slave are you? 
Secondly, the scripture tells us in Peter, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. The three things I believe he's given us that, we can, that will, will ensure our transformation are these. The Holy Spirit, which we receive at conversion. The Word of God. And the church. He's given us those three things to help us to be transformed into his image. Many of us don't avail ourselves of the spirit or the word much. And the church some. And then we wonder why it is we're not living a powerful Christian life. We've taken the swords he's given us and laid them on the side. In order to be transformed, number three is where is your focus and where is your dependence? For, For your hope of transformation, who are you looking to? Where's your focus? Where's your dependence? What are you depending on to transform you? Here's some options. Option one, on on my own failure and myself. I can't believe I did that again. I really told myself I wasn't going to do that again. I'm going to have to make a a stronger pledge not to do that again. I'm just really miserable about this. I'm really upset. I'm I'm just going to work harder. Tell me how that works for you or how it's been working for you. If we could transform ourselves by our own willpower, Christ did not need to die. Secondly, we can focus on a bunch of lists of rules and regulations. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. This is not going to be in my home. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do all these things. I'm going to make a huge list. And I'm going to follow this list carefully. And my life's going to be transformed. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's really important that we understand how we're transformed. Verse 20 of chapter 2. He first talks about people not judging you based on food or drink or religious festival or new moon or Sabbath. And he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on into details of visions and puffed up without reason by his sensual mind, not holding fast to Christ. Asceticism is this. I will get away from everything that's sinful. Go to Europe. Look at the monasteries. Look at the people who withdrew from the whole world into a monastery to become holy. 
Guess what they found when they got there? They brought themselves along on the trip. Their own sin nature didn't need the world or the devil to help them out. Their own sinful nature brought them to destruction. How many religious groups and people are so religious about their rules and regulations and yet all of a sudden, whoops, this huge sin just pops out on the table? Look what Paul says. If, verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why as if you're still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle... Uh-uh, don't touch that. Don't, do not taste. Do not touch. No touchy. Don't get close to that. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. He says those teachings are human precepts. And he says this. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Oh, they look wise. Here's 10 steps to do this. Here's 15 steps to do that. Here's how you do all this and that. And here's all the rules you need to follow. So they have the appearance. These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. And asceticism. And severity to the body. I'm just going... I mean, there are people in the world who literally take chains and beat themselves to make them become holy. What does Paul say? But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Christ is risen. He has given us his spirit. Is your allegiance to Christ and is your dependence upon Christ or is it to some wonderful sounding, very spiritual sounding rules and regulations that you're going to follow ad nauseum only to find your sin just popping out. Your sinful nature is too powerful for rules and regulations. Your nature needed to die at the cross of Christ. And it's Christ who will set you free. You need to look to him instead of to a list. The sooner we let go of our lists, the sooner we put our attention fully on Jesus and deepen our walk with him, the sooner we're going to be set free. For a lot of people, they're bound up in self-made religion. And since I've been there, sincere as we can be, striving as hard as we can, 
The problem is we've lost our first love. We're not focused on Jesus. Why would God give us anything that would take our focus off of Jesus? He hasn't. The Pharisees, you want to see self-made religion? Just watch the Pharisees. Oh, you can't be, you know, grinding grain with your hands. You can't raise somebody from the dead on the Sabbath. You can't walk more than 2,000 paces. You can't carry anything bigger than a loaf of bread. Matter of fact, you might want to walk 1,000 paces the day before so you can walk 1,000 paces the next day so you can get to where you want to go. And Jesus just blew through it. And they were furious. They were furious because he wasn't keeping the law the way they said it should be kept. You will never be transformed if your focus is on yourself and your ability or a wonderful system of rules and regulations that you are so focused on that you don't see Jesus. Look at Paul's solution. Verse chapter three. If then, so he says all this stuff is what? It will not stop the flesh. Make the, make, give me a thousand rules. That's great. It's not going to stop the flesh. Notice what he says, chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on your lists. No, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are connected to Christ. Set your focus on Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. Take our eyes off ourself. Take our eyes off our self-made religion. Put our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Worship him. Grow to know him. Seek to, to imitate him. And he, by the grace of the Spirit inside you, will begin to transform your life. And finally, let's look at, Paul also says in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul, if you look at Philippians 3, Paul goes through all the regulations. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Here's all my credentials. Here's all the things I did. He said, I count them all what? Rubbish. Dung. To know Christ. And his, his statement here in, in 310 is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. If you don't know him, you won't know the power of his resurrection. They're inseparable. This is why we see in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul tells us that Christ has connected us with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been connected with him. 
And that changes who we are. We're no longer who we used to be. We're no longer enemies of the cross of Christ. We are now his children. And we have a new heart. And that's the only way we're going to change. So recognize whose slave you are. Realize you've been getting everything you need for life and godliness. Make your focus Christ and your dependence Christ and Him alone. And four, live in your new identity. You want a picture of this? Marriage is a beautiful picture of this. Here you're walking along, you're single. All of a sudden you walk down this aisle and you stand before the church and you say some vows and you're, you're what? I'm married? And we're actually going to go home together? And not have to have a chaperone? And I'm no longer a single this or a single that. I'm now with this person? Or picture a daughter who finds a young man who's been diligent for 20 years investing and saving and investing and saving and he has millions of dollars set aside in the bank when she says I do guess what she now is connected to him and to what everything he has our connection with Christ our relationship with Christ gives us his spirit we are if we're Christians we have a new identity now your, your flesh and, and your conscience will say, oh, I'm still this, I'm this utterly terrible person. And other. No. You're a child of the king. And you have been given everything you need if you'll trust him and pray and know his word. You'll get, he's given you everything you need to have a transformed life. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You're no longer living your life. You're living his life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let's look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ as it empowers us to be his ambassadors. So first it empowers us to be transformed, and that's really important, that we can enjoy him and be useful for him. Now we've also been empowered to be his ambassadors. How has he done that? One, by giving infallible proof that Christ is the savior of the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, Paul talks about the eyewitnesses who saw Christ's resurrection. Paul makes sure we understand it's a historical fact. And the Bible tells us it was impossible for death to keep him. We read that in Acts 2, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What a savior. Death couldn't hold him. Death could not hold Christ. 
Remember John 10, 18? Jesus makes this statement. No one takes it from me. He's talking about his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Romans 1.4 tells us that Christ was declared to be the Savior, the Son of God, in power because of the resurrection. The resurrection tells everyone that Christ is the Savior of the world. An English theologian said the following, Had the crucifixion of Jesus ended his disciples' experience of him, it's hard to see how the Christian church could have come into existence. That church was found on faith in the Messiahship of Jesus. A crucified Messiah was no Messiah at all. He was, not, he was one rejected by Judaism and a curse of God. It was the resurrection of Jesus, as St. Paul declares in Romans 1-4, which proclaimed him to be the Son of God with power. We're not pointing people to a dead Savior. We're pointing them to Christ, the living Savior. And we can do it unabashedly because we have infallible proof that he was raised from the dead. Everyone knew that Christ's claim of resurrection would prove him to be the Savior of the world. Christ was unashamedly proclaiming that he would raise himself from the dead. Matthew 16, 21 Jesus began to talk to his disciples about going to Jerusalem and suffering many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and on the third day to be raised. He said it over and over and over again. In John 2, the Jews want a sign. And he says, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Same song and dance later in Matthew 12. 38 through 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't keep this a secret. He put it out there for everyone. And remember our passage today that we read before we got into this? The leaders wanted to make sure that there was no fraud here about taking his body away. And so they did what? They had the tomb secured by a Roman guard. That's as secure as it gets, friends, the Roman guard. They put a seal on it and they stationed these men there who would lose their life if that body was taken. Notice the last part of what we read in 28, 11 through 15, the guard comes back to the leaders and says, uh, you know that, that body over there we're supposed to be guarding? Uh, some stuff happened. And uh, we're not really responsible for that. Kind of angel came down, there's kind of an earthquake. And... Um, that wasn't part of the job description. And what did they do? Did they go praise God? He's risen. He's our king and our Lord. What did they say? Here's some money. Let's suppress the truth. 
Wow. Christ is risen, and we do what? We pay the guards. Because everybody knew if he rose, he was the Messiah. They knew it. That's Romans 1 right there, friends, suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness. These religious leaders sealed their own doom and the doom of their people. And people will try to suppress the resurrection to you, won't they? But our job is to proclaim it with boldness and joy. So, the resurrection gives us infallible proof that he's the Savior. Secondly, the resurrection emboldens us to proclaim the gospel, risking all that we have because of a future promised resurrection. The resurrection has power to change who we are. Now, I am not always the one who has the highest risk tolerance in my life. I wish I could say that. And I sh- for sure, you won't believe this, but I'm afraid of heights. There, I got down the table. Okay? And while I was teaching in the schools, we had a faculty bonding experience where we went to a ropes course. And there were all kinds of things we had to do, kind of close to the ground. I had no problem with that. That's pretty cool. Then we walk out into this area, and there's this telephone pole. At least as high as this room. And about 10 feet beyond it is a little trapeze. Okay. And we had all kinds of faculty going up the telephone pole and jumping over and trying to get the trapeze. A lot of ladies went, did that. You're going, okay, there's no way out of here. I'm going to have to go up this pole. Or my manhood will be completely decimated. And so they put this harness on you. And it was tied to a rope that went over that, this trapeze pole thing. And so you started climbing. And they had a guy with a big pole and they had holes in the pole. And this guy had this rope all tied through this. And you're, he cinched it all down. And I'm kind of going out. This does work every time, right? He goes, yeah. And so I start making my way up this pole. And I'm just keeping my eyes focused, like straight ahead into this pole. And I'm climbing, and I'm climbing, and I'm getting to the top of the trees. And then I'm supposed to get on top of the pole. I mean, here's this guy, 6'9", holding onto this pole, trying to get up onto top of the pole. And I'm standing on this pole. And now, I'm supposed to jump out that's a whole lot farther than... T- I don't know how far that was. It was way out there. And I did the best I could. I jumped. I missed it. And I just drop it. And all of a sudden, poof, I'm caught. And then I finally come down. And I'm like, I did that. 
the resurrection is your harness. The resurrection says, no matter what happens in this life, you can go for it because I will raise you again from the dead. There is no risk that this life can take you from. I will raise you. I was, bo- I was more bold with a harness. I would not have gotten up that pole and stood on top of that pole with no harness. There's no way. The resurrection sets us free to risk everything for him. This is why they were transformed. Remember these guys. I mean, these guys were the ones who just the night before Jesus' crucifixion denied him three times, ran, hid, didn't show up. These were the guys who had no spiritual understanding. These were the guys who had no humility. They're fighting over who's going to be the first in the kingdom. These were the guys who, Lord, just, let's just call down fire from heaven and strike that Samaritan city right there. I mean, these guys were ordinary people. Very ordinary people. They lacked faith. They lacked commitment. They lacked power. They were just fishermen. They were everyday folk in Galilee. There were no superstars here. There was no Olympic athletes here. There was no corporate execs here. They were powerless. And they all told Jesus, we will follow you to death. Great intentions. Didn't happen. If you want to go beyond great intentions to seeing something done, it involves the resurrection. It involves the resurrection of Christ. You see, the disciples needed two things to be effective. One, they needed to be convinced that Christ was really alive. And secondly, they needed to have the Holy Spirit. They needed those two things. That's why when you look at Acts chapter 1, Jesus takes care of both those things. Why did Jesus hang around for 40 days after he was raised from the dead? To teach them, but I think his number one reason was to make sure there was no question at all in their minds that he had risen. This was the gospel to them, that Christ rose from the dead. This was Paul's message to the, uh, to the brothers in Athens. He's resurrected. This was their message. They had to believe that he was resurrected. Do you believe he's resurrected? You will never be effective for Christ and sharing the gospel if you don't believe that. And not just up here in your head, but down here in your heart where you're willing to go and do whatever you need to do to proclaim that message to Christ, for Christ. And secondly, Acts 1.8, they needed the Spirit. They were there, they were praying in the upper room, and Jesus said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They waited 
Pentecost came, they received the Spirit. Look out. These men went from being wimps to being a force to be reckoned with. Unbelievable. Remember Acts 4.13? Peter and John healed the blame man. Remember that? Let's go to Acts 4.13 right quick. Let's let the inspired word teach us. Now remember, Peter, before Jesus was crucified, was in the outer court while they're holding the trial. And he's scared to death when a little girl comes up and says, I think you're one of Jesus' followers. Remember that? Look at this. Verse 8, chapter 4. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to the rulers, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow. What was the difference? They believed he was risen. They had the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to the very men who sentenced Jesus to death. Notice verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, MacArthur calls them uh, illiterate ignoramuses in the original language, they were astonished. And they recognized, this is key friends, that they had been with Jesus. Do we want to turn the world upside down for Christ? Do we want to be transformed and be a, an ambassador for him? We're going to have to be with Jesus. We're going to have to have a real relationship with Christ. These men had that. They were imperfect in all, in all kinds of ways. They were unschooled. They were ordinary men. And they stood up before the ruling council of Israel and told them that Christ is the only way to salvation and that they had crucified the Messiah. That doesn't fit into our modern day evangelistic techniques. That's offensive. Then they, did, then they told him in verses 18, don't speak in his name anymore. And they said, 
Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Are you to the point in your relationship with Christ where you can't help but speak? That comes by the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Spirit within us. We can teach you all the techniques in the world of how to share your faith. We can give you all the gospel tracts in the world. But there has to be something coming from within. And the only way it comes is when we know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And we can't help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. So, they're sent on their way. But they'll be back. Chapter 5. They're in the court, the temple area, and they're teaching and preaching in his name, and they're arrested, remember? And God sets them free and says, go back and preach in the same area again. So we come to verse 28 of chapter 5. They're standing before the same council again. I mean, they were arrested. The Spirit of God let them free. They went back out and preached again. They're arrested again. They're back before the same guys again. And the Sanhedrin says, We strictly charge, verse 28, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. They got some counsel. Gamaliel said, hey, if these guys are for real, you can't stop them. They're fighting against God. Let them go. So look what they did in verse 40. So they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were ordinary men. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, with a foolish message, Christ crucified. And they turned the city upside down. We're living in a country in which there's a growing antagonism 
toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have two options. We can try to fit within the narrowing, narrowing borders of what they want us to do. Or we can obey God rather than men. Unless you know Christ and the power of his resurrection and are dependent upon the Holy Spirit, you will close your mouth. Christ is worthy for us to boldly proclaim him in every context we can find ourselves in. John MacArthur wrote, because of the resurrection, the heartbroken followers of the crucified rabbi were transformed into the courageous witnesses and martyrs who, in a few years, spread the gospel across the Roman Empire and beyond. Belief in the resurrection, the truth that this life is only a prelude to the life to come, for those who trust in Jesus Christ could not be obliterated by ridicule, prison, torture, or even death. No fear or dread in this life can quench the hope and joy of an assured life to come. Finally, Christ's resurrection gives infallible proof that the judge of the world was resurrected. Not only was the Savior resurrected, but the judge of the world was resurrected. The one that everyone will have to deal with is Jesus. Acts 17, 30 and 31. Paul writes as he's talking to the people in in Athens. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How does God put his seal on who's going to judge the world? He raised him from the dead. We have a two pronged message He is the Savior. Come to him and be saved. The second problem of that message, he is the judge. Repent and trust in him to be saved. Back in 1980, there was some amazing volcanic activity on the west coast. Mount St. Helens was preparing to erupt. And there was an old man who lived up on Mount St. Helens across from the volcano over a little lake called Spirit Lake. He had a little lodge there. His name was Harry Truman. And all the officials came up and begged him to get off the mountain and begged him to get off the mountain and pled with him to get off the mountain. And he was interviewed by a local news agency. And he said, you know, even if it does blow, I'm just going to sit here on my front porch because it's a couple miles away and I'm just going to watch it take place. May 18th, 1980, 
It did erupt, and it buried Harry Truman under hundreds of feet of debris. He was confident that he was okay where he was at. He didn't need to change anything he was doing. He was far enough away to avoid the disaster to come. Our message to our culture is you must repent and turn to Christ that you might be saved. That requires us to be being transformed by his Holy Spirit into something we were, we're not what we used to be. And it requires us then to believe the resurrection and be empowered by the Spirit to take the gospel to all those around us. If you're here today and your confidence is in coming to church and checking off some boxes and going through some religious activities and you don't know Christ, you're just like Harry Truman. Your confidence is in the wrong place. Christ's righteousness is the only thing that will save. The resurrection is the answer. Here is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is the judge. You're going to either meet him as Savior or you're going to meet him as judge. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Father, I pray for those here who have a form of religion but have no power. Their life is the same as it's always been. There's no change. They're just trying to be religious and trying to, trying to be as good as they can be. May they let go of all that and turn to Jesus and repent of their sin and deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. For those of us here, Lord, who know you, I pray that our transformation would be based upon our relationship with Christ. and the Holy Spirit who lives in us, and that those would be, and, this, and the Word, that those would be our trust to be transformed. And Lord, as you transform us, give us a voice to be able to tell people about the risen Savior. Father, we pray you'd help us. Thank you for your glorious resurrection. Thank you that you crushed the head of Satan. Thank you that you set us free to go into the world and to make a difference for Christ. Grant us boldness to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.